Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The United Nations turns 75 this year, but rather than having a diamond jubilee, the UN is instead embarking on a listening tour. The UN is seeking feedback from as many people in as many communities as possible, all around three big questions. What kind of world do we want to create? Are we on track? And what is needed to bridge the gap? This listening tour is taking different forms in different places. Here in the U.S., the United Nations Association of the United States, UNAUSA, is organizing a series of consultations among its network of 20,000 members. These consultations solicit input and recommendations about the future of the U.N. and how to achieve a sustainable future by 2045. The results are then presented to UN officials and world leaders at the official commemoration of the UN's anniversary in September. So for today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. I am going to bring you inside the process of how the UN is marking its 75th anniversary. On April 28th, I moderated a global consultation the theme of the night was gender equality, and it was organized by the Women Affinity Group of UNAUSA. The consultation took place via Zoom call. There were about 150 people participating from around the country. So to set the stage for a broad conversation about the future of gender equality, I kicked off with a one-on-one -on -one interview with Michelle Milford Morse, who is the UN Foundation's Vice President for Girls and Women's Strategy. In the interview, Michelle Milford Morse explains the significance of a 1995 UN meeting on women and gender equality. This meeting resulted in a key document called the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action. We discuss progress and lack thereof on gender equality since that meeting and how the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting gender equality. Then, after about 15 minutes, the consultation begins. This involved me asking a series of about 10 questions to the audience and the audience giving their answers. So in the second half of this episode, I provide you a sampling of what people are saying about the future of gender equality and the United Nations. If you are in the United States and want to participate in a future global consultation, you can visit unausa.org. If you're outside the United States and want to learn how you can participate in a consultation, go to un75.online and you'll find links from there. All right, so let's have a listen. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, 
launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, so the consultation we are about to have will directly invoke the Beijing Declaration and Program of Action. Michelle, can you kind of take us back 25 yeah. years ago and explain the significance of the Beijing Declaration? I would be very happy to do that. It was a really momentous moment then in 1995 in Beijing when um, 189 governments from around the world gathered in one place and one time to essentially agree that women are people. I mean, it was as, as fundamental as that. They agreed unanimously to this platform of action that uh, Mark mentioned that had 12 specific actions that governments agreed to take to finally prioritize the equality, the dignity, the rights, and the opportunity opportunities of all women everywhere. And I'll add that it's one of the first times that governments took seriously the future, the potential, and the lives of adolescent girls. We can trace the advocacy we see now to that age group back to Beijing. And it was just a very important moment um, for the movement for gender equality. And most of us consider it the high watermark uh, for gender equality. We haven't seen governments agree with that kind of, um, uh, it was unanimous with that kind of vigor uh, since then. And in fact, we've made very little progress um, since uh, Beijing. And so that's why this is an important anniversary. Yeah, and, and, and for most people who are not acutely tuned into the inner workings of the United Nations, uh, Beijing is the moment in 1995 made famous by Hillary Clinton's remark, right. women's rights are human rights, human rights are women's rights, once and for all. That, that is the soundbite from that uh, UN, UN confab. So of those 12 areas that were agreed to in 1995 as priorities, as places, as priorities around which action needs to be taken, where have we seen the most progress? Education, probably. Um, since then, you know, we have slowly over time reached parity in uh, elementary education for girls and boys, but a lot of people probably trace that more to the MDG era than anything else. So the MDGs really pushed the education area, the Millennium Development Goals. For a while, there was also an increase in women's um, labor force participation in their, in their earning power. We've seen that stall in a lot of places, and also be subsumed by the ongoing uh, unpaid care burden and by a pay gap that won't seem to go away. And certainly the current pandemic is not going to help that. So we saw some gains in economic justice that really haven't held or um, increased in a meaningful way. Women's bodies remain a, a battleground. They have been since then, and they remain a battleground. And so there's been spotty progress on women's ability to to um, have a say over the number and spacing and timing of their children and whether or not to have children, but there's been regression there. So the story I would tell overall is that of those 12 um, action areas, the progress has been fragile and slow and reversible and incremental. And globally, it would be difficult to say that we've made robust progress um, towards any of them. Some countries have done better than others. Some countries have done well only to then see a regression um, in those areas. Well, well, what's an example of a country that 
progressed, but then regressed? Well, I'm really sorry to say as an American that, that we are living in one of them. Um, the United States women's bodies have been used as a bit of a yo-yo uh, in the United States where we have seen increasing women's increasing ability to, con- to have a, a say over their futures and then for the, those, those rights to be threatened in certain places. Um, women increasingly in the United States too make up the greatest share of, uh, call of, women, of women seeking a higher education. So women are the majority of people getting undergraduate degrees and that share is increasing in master's degrees and PhDs. But women, um, like two thirds of that, that grad school debt or that's that college debt you always hear about is held by women who then go into a pay, a, a, a paid labor where they are paid less and where, they're doing more uncare, unpaid care work, and so they have a harder time paying that off. They're also the majority of single parents. So that's kind of showing you, like, all of a sudden we have all these university women, but then they're going to a labor force in which it's hard for them to harness the, the gains from that. And women are still disproportionately represented in the lowest-paying careers. Um, and in some of those places, uh, you know, there are studies that suggest women will never catch up, like in places like in, in computer science. So the United States is one example. I want to say, though, this is happening all over the world. Um, you know, even if we consider places like uh, the, the uh, Scandinavian, the Nordic countries, you know, they have made huge progress on gender equality, just truly admirable gen, uh, progress. And yet when you look at do women entrepreneurs benefit any better there from venture capital funding? They don't. They just, they don't. And the unpaid care burden is, is the gap is smaller there, but there's still a gap. Um, and then one more example I'll say is that, um, that I'm, I'm kind of sorry to make everyone aware of if you're not, is Russia. Russia is a place that in 2017, its lower parliament decriminalized domestic violence. As long as the victim didn't end up in the hospital, it was no longer a crime. That happened in 2017. So there are places in which it seems like surely we still don't have these laws, these practices that uh, punish girls and women just for being girls and women. But sadly, that's not the case. So maybe let me ask you the inverse of that question. Where have you seen progress or what are good examples of progress that you could potentially draw a straight line from the Beijing Declaration? (laughs) <laughs> well, I think that the area that gives me the most hope, and certainly it was uh, an area of focus in Beijing and has been since, is is the area of women's leadership, women's political engagement, women's political representation. Now, that is an area where we still have so much work to do. And, you know, when the World Economic Forum every year puts forth its its data on how many years we have until we reach gender equality in, in any given country, they point out that political representation and leadership still lags behind some other areas. And yet all over the world, you have women taking control of governments um, in those places for the very first time. And that's the only way that you get long-term sustainable change at the country level is when women are in parliaments, when women are um, in, in, in Congress, when women are the head of state and we have slowly over time, it's way too slow, but it's an area where we're seeing progress. That, that is the, it's the part that gives me the most hope. So, you know, the, the Beijing declaration is obviously a very key inflection point in the UN's history. 
Uh, it seems to me, and, and I'd love your perspective on this, that to a large degree, a lot of the ideas and points and pro- program specific program areas of action that were included in the Beijing Declaration are now sort of part of the sustainable development goals. Um, what is the relationship between the Beijing Declaration program of action and the sustainable development goals? And, you know, is advocating for the SDGs today, you know, are you also advocating for principles of gender equality or to what extent are you? Absolutely. So we shouldn't take for granted that there was always going to be an SDG five, the one that is uh, aimed squarely at gender equality. There were, there were really contentious battles about whether or not there should be a standalone goal on gender equality, especially because gender equality is reflected in some of the other goals from health to education to, to poverty um, you know, to, to strong institutions and the rule of law. So we shouldn't take for granted that we're about to have five years of SDG 5. And I do think that a lot of the activists who were key in, in seeing through Beijing and making Beijing what it was are some of the same ones that showed up when the UN started doing its global consultation on what goals we should put forth in this, you know, post-2015 agenda to follow the Millennium Development Goals. Um, those 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 activists were key um, making a bridge from Beijing to um, to the SDGs. And Beijing, it's the important thing to remember about that as well is that you know you you've all participated in or heard about or visited the annual Commission on the Status of Women, which takes place in New York City in March and is kind of a two week um, long uh, session, UN session that features side events and parallel events, all dedicated to the question of how to achieve gender equality. Those two weeks every year in March are dedicated to measuring progress since Beijing. So, um, so even though it's 25 years ago, it has stayed front and center in the UN process, and it definitely um, influenced how we ended up with an SDG five. So uh, we are having this consultation virtually because we are all under lockdown yeah. uh, because of the global pandemic, because of COVID-19, COVID-19. And I wanted to ask you, you know, the relationship between COVID-19 and the trend lines we're seeing on gender equality. You know, in, you know, I'm a journalist. It is the story of probably my lifetime. And mm-hmm. one thing that I have noticed so far is that its impact on international affairs more broadly is to accelerate trends that were already happening. What was happening before COVID-19 is still happening. It's just happening faster. Uh, I'm wondering if that is true in the field of of gender equality. What's the impact that you've seen so far? The impact on gender equality is going to be astonishing for all of us. And um, this is, it is, as you say, the pandemic has revealed systemic problems in governments and systems all over the world. And the effect on gender equality is just going to be almost immeasurable and very serious unless governments right now put girls and women at the heart of their national response plans. And the reason for that, there are many reasons for that, but let's just start with the fact that women make up between 70 to 90% of frontline health workers from nurses to midwives all over the world. 
let's add to that that even in countries where they can get their hands on personal protective equipment, it was designed for men. So it doesn't always fit right and it leaves them more exposed. Consider that, like I said, the majority of the world's old people are women who we know, even though men, the mortality data suggests that men are far more threatened by this virus. We don't need, we shouldn't forget that women make up the majority of older people in the world. They make up the majority of illiterate people in the world, which means that when you design public health messages, you have to think about whether or not they are going to reach women and women are going to understand them. Uh, women make up the majority of single parents um, girls are going who, who are already we're trying to get them into schools as I mentioned at the beginning we finally got into parity at the elementary education level and those girls are no longer in school we know from past emergencies that when girls aren't in school they're far more vulnerable to sexual exploitation child marriage um, um, FGM so we're worried about we're worried about girls and uh, we're worried about women in, in, in refugee settings too and how the the virus is poised to deeply threatened health and safety in refugee settings. And then the last thing I'll mention, which hopefully you've all heard about, and I say hopefully because you all need to be part of the solution, I believe, is that um, we're going to see horrendous spikes in family violence and domestic violence as women are um, quarantined with their abusers and have uh, a hard time getting to services. And some of those shelters shut down because they're, no, they're not safe. As, as part of compassionate release programs, if prisons release abusers, like we're facing a lot of really serious problems when it comes to violence. And I'll just remind everybody, you know, violence against women is one of those issues that we know from data affects one in three women globally. So we didn't have, we were already at a, an emergency level. We didn't have any room for this problem to get worse. In fact, we should have been doing a lot more about this problem for years already. So you've listed a number of ways in which women and girls are impacted by this current pandemic. And as you said, governments around the world right now and other entities, institutions are planning their recovery and response measures, sometimes through laws, sometimes through, through other means. What are some concrete things that governments and other entities can do to ensure that the safety of women and girls and the principles of equality that we're all talking about here are embedded in recovery and response plans? Yeah, well, and I will, so I'll list a couple for you, but since there's a lot, and I bet this, this particular group is curious, Secretary General's office released just a couple of uh, weeks ago a policy brief that gave governments really tactical things that they could do to address this. The good news is that we don't have to invent, we don't have to invent actions. We already know what you do to protect women's rights and dignity and participation. We just now have to do it. So um, one of the first one is make sure that as governments consider these major cash transfers um, to companies, make sure that money gets in the hands of women. Because women, are the, because again, because they're the, the ones who do a lot of the frontline work, because they're the ones who are more likely to have children, because they're in jobs where they're less likely to have insurance, a, a pension, um, a, you know, a retirement plan, make sure those programs get cash into the hands of women. Um, another one is to not shut down domestic violence outreach. So even though paramedics, police officers, nurses, doctors, they are all overwhelmed. They are, they are without a doubt the, the heroes in this story. We need to make sure that they are aware that the spike is happening so that they can screen uh, women who do get to sources of help so that they can screen them and that, so that there can be a, a process of justice uh, moving forward and so that those, those women can get the help that they need. 
Um, Yeah, sorry. Well, I was going to say, so we have just one minute left. Um, I I do want to ask you one final question, though. Sure. Um, The reason we are all here today, 75th anniversary of the United Nations, why does this anniversary in particular matter for gender equality? Oh, well, the beauty of this is enshrined in the preamble of the Charter, the charter calls for equality among all people so that we can all live in larger freedom. We, the, the beauty of that aspiration remains in my heart. I think in all, in all, in your minds as well. Um, 75 years is a really long time to wait and we really shouldn't wait any longer for it. So we need to use the 25th anniversary of Beijing, the 75th anniversary of, of the UN as a point of leverage to say, we are here, this is what we want, we don't want to wait any longer. And that, and to reaffirm, this is not about men versus women, or culture versus culture, or religion versus religion. This is about fair-minded people against um, fear-minded people. And I believe the fair-minded people can win, but we all have to kind of uh, carry this banner together and insist on, on justice and larger freedom for everybody. We the peoples. We the peoples. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for doing this for us. We appreciate it. Uh, Okay, so now we are moving on to the reason we are all here. We have to get to work. So we are now going to have our global consultation. Uh, I will guide you through the consultation. The consultation will necessarily involve your participation. To kick off, we have to ask three big questions. Uh, The goal of the UN75 consultations is to answer those three questions, which are, what kind of future do we want to create? Are we on track to secure a better world? And what action is needed to help us achieve a brighter future? That is the rubric under which we will be having our conversation today. But of course, we're going to be looking at these questions using the gender equality lens. As I ask these questions, please do raise your hand in the chat box and Himaja will uh, call on you. And we'd love to get a couple of voices in each of these questions. Overall, do you think women and girls in 2025 will be better off, worse off, or the same as today? Better off, excellent. I, I, I too am an optimist. Nearly 70% of respondents said better off. If anyone wants to explain why they they voted, how they voted, uh, please do raise your hand and Himaja will call on you. And please try to keep your answer brief. We'd love to get a a couple of voices in. All right, Mark, we have um, one person, Veda Ganta, who is going to talk. So I am going to unmute her now. Um, I think that women overall will be better off. There, I, there may still be some political and economic factors that um, may hinder their growth, but I think as a community, we've had a lot more chances now with the internet, with more social media and communication to advocate for ourselves and advocate for our rights. And because of that, I feel like there will be more of a push for change in the next 20 years, and that's what will lead to a lot more freedoms for a lot more women and more access to education and things that will give women the tools to pull themselves up. Thank you. Yes. Um, next we have um, Rima Nashashibi. Okay. I'll be very brief. Uh, basically I, I see the rights of women rolling back instead of getting better. I, I hear men asking for women to lose the right to choose 
and or voting privileges. So I, I don't see a good future for us in the next 25 years. And unless we become very active and we demand our seat at the table, they're going to roll back even worse than they are right now. Thank you. We have time for, for another. All right. Next is going to be Nicole Perez. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Nicole, and uh, I think that uh, women and girls will be better off by 2045 uh, because as more women come into positions of power in government um, and other institutions, I think we'll unlock a lot more opportunities for women and girls. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are now going to move on to discuss what actions various actors can play to achieve gender equality for future generations. So we're going to talk about solutions. Um, what would you advise the UN Secretary General do to address global trends that affect women and girls? All right. Next, I'm going to go to Sophia. Um, yes. So I think that one thing that is super important for women to actually be able to keep up with these trends um, is I think that there are a couple of different gaps and one of them is digital and it's a gap between like different women's access to technology Um, and I think that this prevents them from not only achieving the same education as other people but from like keeping up with global news and you know having access to the same resources so I think closing the digital gap is something really important And then also just um, there's a huge stigma against menstruation and a lot of women can't go to school, for example. Um, So I guess I would advise that they maybe find some way to uh, distribute technology or fundraise for technology and then also address uh, access to menstrual products. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Next, I'm going to go to Rustam. I apologize for my accent. Um, I'm not from here, but I'm, I'm based in New York. Um, thanks so much for hosting this. Um, I think one thing I just want to call out, and I think um, the one woman is doing a great job, especially with a strategic plan they have um, set for 2018 and 2021 uh, that combines um, several of those um, trends and you know um, includes uh, forms of like fighting against like violence. Um, I think as to what Sophia said, um, one like digital gender gap is important. Um, Some studies were published and for that um, it's trying to bridge that gap between um, like both like genders and providing women especially access to all of those opportunities um, is something that would major impact um, the work of the UN women but also in general. Um, And then especially the action that the UN Secretary General can action on is to encourage countries, but at the same time, local cities and communities to support those um, advancements towards uh, the gender gap. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So the next set of questions come directly from the United Nations. In advancing gender equality on a local, national, and global level, what forms of action and collaboration are needed from our elected officials? Question two, what actions should we take as individuals? And question three, what more can organizations like UNA USA do to help achieve gender equality? Again, put your answers in the Q&A box, and if you'd like to 
uh, raise your hand and chat, please do. We'll have uh, several minutes to discuss these three questions. Great. We already have a few people who'd like to give a comment, Mark. So I'm going to unmute Alora. All right. So I think that across the board, um, from a national level and an individual level, I think one thing we really need to do is just encourage more allyship. Um, as much as women are fighting for this cause, I don't think there's really been any social movement that's succeeded without allyship. And at this point, men just aren't coming to the table in defense of women. I've been to a number of women's rights events, and it's always rare to have even a handful of men show up. And when men aren't coming to the table in defense of women, the voices of those who are against women, who are calling for us to lower women's rights, those, those stand out a lot more prominently. So I think across the board, we have to get more men involved and really, like, really share the message that this can't happen unless other people are also supporting us. Thank you. All right, let's, let's keep going. More contributions from the crowd. Great. Um, next, I'm going to go to Emma. What I would suggest is continuing and expanding, um, looking at issues with an intersectional lens. And so um, while half of the world's population are women or identify as women, um, there's a lot of different aspects of one's identity that influence how one experiences not only gender inequality, but a whole range of issues. And so taking that into account when dealing with issues that might affect one population more than another or might pit um, situate two women who are of two different um, other identities and differing needs, I think that'll be really important. Um, and also just speaking directly to the people affected. I feel something with the United Nations that a lot of everyday people might feel is that it's um, so far removed from their everyday life or um, doesn't, it's just a bunch of people behind closed doors. Um, so I think it, continuing to hold conversations like this and making efforts to speak to people who might not even know events like this exist, I think will be really important. In, being able to properly address issues that affect the everyday person. Thank you. Great. Um, next we have Jackson. Uh, what I think is really important in addressing a lot of social issues is leaning into partnerships. So our elected officials can certainly look to um, collaborate with um, organizations and individuals from the nonprofit sector who might have more specialized interest and knowledge of certain issues, particularly regarding gender equality. And that's something that uh, UNAUSA can also do when we're looking to address certain issues is look to expertise that's often present in nonprofits that might not be as available in the public sector. Perfect. Next we have Sophia. Um, so one thing that is super important to me um, is I feel like young people have so many great ideas. And I also feel like a lot of us um, are able to educate ourselves enough on this process um, and learn enough about it and be professional um, and actually enter and have like a physical space in the UN where we can share our ideas. Um, so I feel like that would be something to consider for the future is not just having uh, youth delegates occasionally there or having a UN youth forum, but actually allowing young people to be at UN meetings where they're typically only adults. 
um, because I feel like we have a lot to share and we can be very professional and mature. So, yeah. Well, you can do one last, uh, one last comment, please. Sure. I'm going to go to Michelle Thorne. Thank you. I would uh, urge an organization like uh, UNA USA to um, encourage the U.S. to uh, ratify CEDAW um, and uh, educate uh, men and women in the United States about CEDAW. I think it's a powerful instrument that uh, most people in the United States are unaware of, and it's really a disadvantage uh, worldwide to not have the U.S. at the table, uh, but it's also a disadvantage domestically for us not to be a part of the conversation. All right. So that was it. That was a global consultation taking place here in the United States. Big thank you to UNA USA for allowing me to moderate this conversation and giving me an inside look at what this UN75 listening tour looks like. And also a big thank you to Himaja Najaretti for moderating the Q&A. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time. Bye.